Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, before we get started today, Catherine and I want to take a moment to welcome our newest Patreon member, Kim Wolf. Kim, thanks so much. We really couldn't make this podcast without the support from Patreon members like you. And if you're listening and you'd like to join the Patreon community, just head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. As always, the links are in the show notes. And with that, on with today's show. Now, our guest this week is 911 dispatcher Brandon Hall from Music City 911 podcast. Unfortunately, Catherine couldn't make this recording because of a last minute scheduling clash, but don't worry, service will resume as normal and she will be back next week. Today, I am joined by the fabulous Brandon Hall, who we met for the first time in Las Vegas Crime Con. You were my podcast row neighbor. Yeah, right next door to each other, right next table to each other, I guess. I have to tell you, on the way home, on the flight, I had downloaded your podcast, Music City 911, and binged as much as I could in the 12 hours that I was flying. Tell us how the podcast came about for you. Well, the podcast itself, I actually started it a little bit over two years ago, actually almost three now, I guess. And I've been a 911 dispatcher for now 22 years. I wanted to highlight dispatchers and also play stuff that people don't really hear. They don't know what we do a lot of times. Your calls that you get, where do you get them from? Yeah, I can get them from a number of different places. Once they're publicly released, that's the kind of easiest way. But, you know, there are times that I want to get a specific call and I'll have to request it just like anybody else would. What does a shift look like for you on any given day? We don't work the typical nine to five. We do work eight hour shifts, but I'll get in there at 630 in the morning for my shift. So my mornings are pretty early, but we're there ready for the rush hour because there's always a lot of wrecks, things like that. And then same thing holds true with the other shifts too. So we work our three eight hour shifts. I've worked all of them and I've been there. And uh, yeah, when I get in, I'll have an assignment for the day. They kind of switch it up a little bit. Sometimes we'll have an all day radio. Sometimes we'll be all day on phones. What do you mean all day on radio? What's the difference? So the radio is actually when you're talking with the police directly or fire EMS, that type thing. And you're dispatching out the call. So it's completely different. At my agency, you're not doing everything all together. I didn't realize that. I thought it was one person just with 17 arms doing a whole lot of different things. At it the can same be time. a lot of different agencies do exactly that. It's usually smaller ones at a place like us where we have so many officers and firefighters, things like that. There's no way we could handle it all at one time. Right. So the call goes in and then the person who's taking the call is tip tap tapping away while they're getting that information. Exactly. That's what we call it too. Tip tap tapping. <laughs> you do a tip tap tapping 101 course. Yeah. Training. We have to teach that to the new call takers when they come in. This is tip tap tapping. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. I could write the manual for you if you need yeah, help. Yeah. All right. So that's really fascinating. So well, we're going to go into that a little bit more when we listen to some audio clips that you've kindly sent over to me later. But I want to ask you first off, what's your most memorable call? I don't know if I have a necessarily a most memorable because I can't tell you what calls I took the last shift I was there. There were so many of them, you, you just lose them so quickly. But a lot of times you'll have people who, you know, I'm one of them. The first month or so that you're there, you'll have several calls that you just remember. 
So 22 years ago, I still have a couple of them that are still in my head. And I'd probably say the one that sticks out more than anything, even though, I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't, you know, as bad as I've taken, I guess. I was on midnight shift. It came in about three, four o'clock in the morning. A woman said that there's a man banging on her door. Wouldn't stop doing it. She couldn't see out the window exactly who it was. And then a, a couple minutes into it, I guess it was, she says, oh, he's walking back out to his car. But then he got a backpack out of the back of his car and started walking completely around the house. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we didn't know what he's doing with the backpack and didn't have a clue. She was sitting there, of course, inside. I guess at this point, the person outside didn't know that she was there or didn't care. I don't know. And it went silent for just a few seconds. And then she starts screaming. He's setting my house on fire. Oh, my God. So he had a gas can, doused her entire house with gasoline, and then set it on fire with her in it. And you're on the call just listening to this unfold. What are you thinking at the time? Well, I mean, you've got two possible scenarios here. Have her stay inside of a burning house and maybe burn up or walk outside and maybe get killed by this guy that's likely trying to cause her harm. You know, the house hasn't fully engulfed in flames yet, but it's starting to. And luckily he got in his car and drove off. And at that point I said, get out of the house, go ahead and get, get out of the house. And she did. And when she got out there, she saw the car, saw who it was. And it turned out it was someone she used to work with and they had a workplace dispute. And that was enough for him to set her house on fire, I guess. Be kind to your workmates, people, because <laughs> that is freaking crazy yeah. story. I guess the thing is, do you always know how it unfolds? Once the call is finished, you might not have a conclusion to it. So how do you cope with that? Yeah. I mean, it's just, I've been doing it for so long. It's some of it. I do look into a little bit just out of curiosity, but most of the time, once I get my part of the job done, I'll go on the next call. There's always calls holding, but I think it was, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, something like that. I had a call where a guy, he calls in and he says something about his brother and he has a machete to his chest and he's trying to stab himself with it. And the guy that's calling is in the living room. He's in his bedroom. And I send the call up just like that and police get out there and it's right at the end of my shift. So I hang up after the call's over with and I get up and leave. Wow. Is that something that you've learned to do as a coping mechanism? Because I can't imagine that you can listen to all of this sort of horrific stuff endlessly and not have some coping mechanism along the way. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how I've developed my coping mechanism other than just letting it go. That's the Mm -hmm. biggest thing for me. I know most people I work with are the same way. Now we don't have calls that really stick with us unless it's a really, really, really bad call. And even then I've had people kill themselves on the phone while I was on the phone with them. I've been the last person to talk to people before they die, Wow! you know, just things like that. And a lot of it, you have to realize that you're not involved with that other than being this faceless person that's on the other end of the line. You didn't bring them to that situation. That is intense though. Do you have, I don't know, a soft place to fall at work? Do they have counselors to process that so people don't end up with PTSD? We have available counselors. And if there's a big case that happens, they'll call them in for us. But most of the time we don't, you know, uh, the stuff I'm telling you today, this is, I won't say normal stuff, but we have stuff similar to all this stuff almost every single day. So it's routine for us. What a different world you live in, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you, what is your biggest pet peeve that you wish you could just get into the ears of every human on the planet and say, listen, when you're on a 911 call, do this. Give me the address first before anything else. That's the biggest thing. That's what we always ask for first. I mean, literally we have a greeting that we record in our own voice. And mine says, what's the address of your emergency? And they will launch into a huge, long, whatever about what is going on. And the whole time I'm sitting there going, okay, I'd love to send you help because right now I can't because you haven't told me where this is. Right. The address, number one priority. You've sent me through two clips. One of the clips is an example of a really bad 911 call. Um, And we're going to play it in its entirety and have that chance to just be the 911 dispatcher and caller, I guess. Why did you choose this particular clip that we're about to listen to? Well, with bad sounding calls, this actually happens a lot. And a lot of people don't understand this. The louder that you get on your cell phone, the worse it gets. The microphone and these things are not that good. They're not made to handle extreme loud noises. So when you start getting up to a certain level, it just starts breaking up and they're better now. I mean, I remember when uh, we first started getting cell phones, you know, to the masses, because when I started, most people still had a landline. 
Oh my god, um, yeah, I didn't even clock that. That is so true. Like yeah, when, yeah, really. when did that transition happen? Uh, yeah, you know, cell phones have been around since like the eighties, but they were the big suitcase looking things you carried around with them, but nobody <laughs> yeah. had those. And yeah. the reception was terrible and all that kind of stuff. The masses started getting them probably in the late nineties, early two thousands. And of course now everyone has one, if not more than one, some people, but yeah, it was probably, I don't know, 2005 or so when most people started getting them and we have a service here in, in the States called cricket and it's a really cheap. You just go month to month like that. And the service was horrible. And like when we had someone call in and it was, you know, usually in a kind of a higher crime area that, you know, lower income, high crime, that type thing. And they would call in when we had like, say a shooting and they would start screaming and we would hear maybe a piece of every five words they said, because it would break up so much. Were you wishing back for the landlines then? Yeah, exactly. Cause we <laughs> would know where they are immediately and there was no breakup that it worked out perfectly. Oh, that's a really good point that you bring up. Is it true that you can find a person's location from their cell phone or the landlines? The landline is automatic. If you still have a landline, right. it'll come up with your exact location, the address and all that kind of stuff. The cell phones is a little bit different. It depends on several things, the type of phone you have, how old it is, what type of technology. And if, you know, there are some people that have done this for what reason, I don't know. You can turn off your location for even 911 services. So when we get the call in, most of the calls we get, we can go to a pretty decently accurate area of where they are. It's not exact, but you know, it's better than it used to be when we had no way of doing it. Yeah. It's a lot better now than it was. That's really interesting about the location. I'm pretty sure I've turned off my location on my phone. Does that mean it automatically turns off the emergency service location ability as well? Is that something we should be all going in and looking in our phones right now and doing? The standard is to have location settings on, but most phones, you'll have a separate setting for location for 911 to turn that off as well. So leave that part on. If you know, don't like the government spying on you, whatever, like that, or Google or whoever, you can turn your other locations off, but leave the one on for now. One great tip, love that. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be a hundred percent sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. Say, we're talking uh, about sustainability, <laughs> maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. <laughs> There's your first challenge of the week. <laughs> Avoid elephants. Elephant. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. It's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. Yeah, tag- you can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, Head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. So, Brennan, set the scene for us. Tell us what we're about to listen to. What's this call going to be about? 
So the first call is the bad sounding one, not to give too much away of it up front. It is a man who has found his wife shot and the circumstances are kind of up in the air about it. Even listening you know, through the entire call, you don't really find out what happened. There was a lot of things going on. Okay, well, let's roll the audio clip and hear how it unfolds. And I think it's really important that if you are listening along with this, try and pick out how many pieces of information this person actually gives to the 911 dispatcher over this period of a call. I mean, that was pretty intense. And I can see why you called it the bad audio clip. That when the 911 dispatcher says the address, I was like, how could you make that out? Did you pick up the address in it when you heard it? Barely, yes. But, you know, of course, 
one of the things is when you're actually on the call, it's a little bit different from the recording. It depends on the recording software too that they're using. Mm-hmm. Some of them are better than others. But sometimes you'll listen to a playback of a 911 call and say, I, I could hear that completely fine. I don't know why the dispatcher couldn't. Well, the dispatcher's on the floor, like at my center with 25, 30 other people and everybody's talking. There's a lot of background noise. It's a little bit harder to hear. But on this, you know, she seemed to be able to hone in on the address pretty easily. And for me, if I'm at work, if I was to hear someone say I'm at 25 Murphy's really quickly like that, most people are like, okay, what is Murphy? Murphy what, what is that? You know, but it's a main street here. And I hear that all the time. I think you guys might be wizards because even when she hears she's got a gunshot wound to the head, I couldn't make that out at all. But then I wonder also, because she did get the address, would it be that possibly that one was from a landline? So it might have come up on the screen anyway. No, I think he was calling from a cell phone. I'm not positive on that, but I'm pretty sure he was just by the way that the phone call on his end sounded. I've heard people screaming at the top of their lungs on a landline phone and it doesn't break up and doesn't distort like that. I mean, I couldn't even tell if it was male or female. I mean, the only information that I could pick up was the address and that there was possibly bleeding out of the head. I don't know where they picked up the gunshot wound information. That just seemed crazy. So what's going on behind the scenes for the dispatcher when this call's coming in? So with that, it did sound like they probably are at a smaller agency. It sounds like she's talking over her shoulder to someone else at one point saying, I can't understand what she's saying. And while she's doing this, she's trying to talk to you know her neighbor here doing dispatch, trying to update them as well, what she's not typing in. And I would imagine that person is probably dispatching the police out. You really do get a sense of chaos from that call. Yeah. On the call, the person, you could tell that they were, I mean, obviously very upset, but also very angry too, because I don't know if you could pick this up at one point, he starts screaming and starts yelling at the dispatcher and used a few pretty harsh expletives against her. And that continued after the responders got there. He threatened to kill the responders and everyone that they know if they didn't save the wife's life. Wow. No, see, I didn't pick up on any of that in there at all. You are a complete wizard, Brandon. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's crazy. What I want to know is, did you find out what happened after that call? Please tell me you did, because I can't be left hanging. Yes, but still there's some open areas to it. This happened, I believe it was in 2014. And the person who called, it was the husband of the wife. He had a dozen different stories. He was not cooperative with the police. There was just so much that they kept stacking against him. A lot of bad things that happened while the police were there too, that were mistakes on their end, but they did end up convicting him of murder. Uh, They sent him to prison. He was in prison for four years. He got an appeal after some very minor things come up and he has since been released from prison. So, you know, really the three possible choices are that he killed her or she killed herself like intentionally, or she accidentally killed herself. Not really sure which Mm -hmm. of those three it is. And we may never know because there were so many different things they have, like I said, released him from prison for these very minor things. When I say very minor, one of the things was they had gotten an argument. She went in the bath to cool off. He even picked the lock or busted in through the door to try to apologize to her. What he says anyway. Yeah. It's always a good time when you apologize by ramming through a locked door. I find. Yeah. Yeah. Red flag. Yeah. There's a lot there. And then she apparently at some point got up out of the bath, still completely naked, walked in the hallway. He says he heard a loud bang, which was the gun going off. And then saw her stumble down the hallway for a few feet and then collapse in the floor. I think the original thing was, it was like 12 or 13 feet that they thought that she may have walked before she fell down. And then they mismeasured the hallway and it was actually only 11 feet. And then the medical examiner says, no, you know, there is a possibility she could have walked that far. There's no possibility she could have walked 12 or 13 feet. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm no medical examiner, but I know most of the time when someone shoots themselves in the head, they will collapse right there on the scene. But it also depends on where you shoot yourself. I was on the phone with someone one time who had just shot themselves in the head and they put the gun in their mouth, pulled the trigger, and they had it at a wrong angle. It blew the side of his face off. And when he was on the phone with me, he was still awake, conscious. He was alert, a lot of pain, but he was probably the most unlucky person I've ever talked to because. He wanted to kill himself. He didn't do it there. They got there. They loaded him in an ambulance. They were driving on the highway at emergency speed, probably 80, 90 miles an hour. He gets up from the back of the ambulance and jumps out and then was run over by three cars. He was still alive. 
Oh, yeah. Somebody did not that want to That is un-freaking-leavable. Yeah, really. I mean, that's like a thousand angels on your shoulder or something. Yeah, or somebody's trying to punish him for the remainder of his life. I don't know if that's wow. the case. Uh, you know, make, But I do recall, like, after that happened, I was on the phones, and I was a little bit away from the fire and medical dispatcher, and he stood up after they wheeled back around and got to him. I remember his face. He stood up. He looked at me and gave me a big thumbs up. He goes, we got a pulse. Unbelievable. That story. And you said you haven't got memorable stories off the charts. This is true the majority of the time. If someone calls in and they say, I'm feeling suicidal, they're not going to do it. It's the cry for help. And, you know, we'll go out there and generally take them to a hospital where they'll get some sort of a psyche eval and then go from there. The people who call in and say, my name is this, I'm at this location and I'm going to kill myself. They're going to do it. You can't stop them. You can try, but they've made up their mind. They know what they're going to do. A good example of that. I was on the phone with someone who said just that. My name is John Doe. I'm at this address. I'm going to kill myself. You can find me at the bottom of the swimming pool. I mean, I heard a splash and what he did was he tied some huge bricks on the bottom of his feet and tossed them in and he just got stuck there on the bottom of the pool and he drowned himself. And why do you think he rang to tell you that? Is that to stop other people finding him? Yeah, I think that's the main thing. Yeah. I've had a woman shoot herself in the head and she said, you know, right before she pulled the trigger, she said, tell my husband, I'm sorry. Oh God, that is such a heavy burden to put on someone. Yeah, exactly. There's, it's a lot, but you know, like I said, I remember that I was on the phone with her and the phones were still backed up. As soon as I hung up the phone, I was right on the next call, not a second later and just continued going. And maybe an hour afterwards, my supervisor came up and said, did you take that call? And I said, yeah. She said, were you on the phone when it happened? I said, yeah. And you know, she's like, do you want to talk to somebody about it? I was like, no, because I I mean, there wasn't anything I could do. I knew that she was going to do it. She had made up her mind. If there was a way I could have stopped it or prevented it, yeah, I'd probably feel bad if it happened, but I knew there wasn't. I mean, that sounds like 22 odd years of experience to get to that point. Were you like that at the very beginning of the job? No, I've told, uh, because I was a trainer for a long time too. I taught people how to do the job. I've told people that there's always a call that makes you realize that you've lost that sense of, I don't know, like morality is not a really good way to put it, but kind of that you're not the same anymore. You realize it right then. And for me, it was a woman who called in and she walked in her dad's house, found him dead, laying on the couch, not really sure how long he'd been there. And at the time when I was hired on, I was simply a police dispatcher. We did nothing medical at all. So I had to send the call up to our medical dispatch and they start asking their questions. We stay on the line muted and we listen to see if there's anything else that we can pick up from the call for the police end of it. So she's bawling her eyes out. It's really, really bad. She's talking about how she found him, how he's not breathing. He could have been there for days, not sure. And the whole time I'm sitting there eating pretzels. And like after the call, after I hung up, I was like, hang on a second. I think I just reached that point. And granted, like I said, I was muted. You couldn't hear any of that. I was just listening in on the call at that point, but yeah. It was just so normal at that point. And granted, I probably hit it beforehand. I probably have reached that point well before, but that was the one that I kind of hit to myself. I was like, okay, I'm there now. Right. So the pretzel eating call is the line in the sand. I think that's (laughs) crazy. It's crazy to think how much your job then has changed you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it has. I mean, I look around at people and everybody's a suspect. You're doing something wrong. I want to find out what it is. Wow. I don't know where to go from there, pretzels and all. Let's kick into the good audio clip that you've given us. Lay the table of what we're going to listen to on this one. So this one, it's a robbery and you don't hear a lot of this in the call, but essentially this person that does this walks into a a jewelry store at a mall and starts breaking the glass out with a crowbar of a display case that has a lot of jewelry in it and starts trying to steal it. And the employee that's there tries to stop the suspect from doing this and ends up getting stabbed multiple times. When at hey, there's there's an armed robbery taking place right now at Macy's. At which mall? Uh, mall of Georgia. Uh, okay. He's in a silver Toyota pickup truck. He just busted through all the windows and glass, and he's taking off right now. Did he have a weapon? Yeah. Okay. He took the tag off of his truck. Okay. So he, did he throw it on the ground? I don't know. It's a gray Tundra single cab. He's taking off right now. Passing by Dillard's heading towards the Hooters right now. It's uh, tinted windows. Looks to be a Hispanic male. 5'10", 5, 5'11", 5, you know, something like that. Had a mask and a, and a hat on. Okay. Hispanic male? Yes. And he's passing in front of Hooters right now. 
heading towards Smaller Georgia Boulevard and Beautiful Highway. Yeah. What color was his hat? Black. And what about his mask? It's grayish in color. Okay. Was anybody were, injured, sir? Not that I'm aware of. What type of gun did he have? He had a large pipe in his hand, and it looked like he had something on his hip that appeared to be a weapon, but I couldn't tell. And he had a backpack. Okay. Do you think it was a gun on his hip? I do, but I can't confirm that. Had a piece of galvanized pipe. Okay. There's uh, another gentleman who's also calling 911 at the moment. Okay. We don't need anybody else unless he has visual on him. I'm just being told one of the Macy's said some uh, worker got stabbed. Somebody got stabbed? Can you confirm yes, that, please? Did you say someone got stabbed? Yeah. Confirm someone got stabbed. Tell you anything about the victims that got stabbed? I know you're not I'm, inside, I'm sir, looking but... at, uh, I'm looking... He's losing a lot of blood. He's laying on the ground. They, they're trying to triage him with some paper towels and some clothing. Okay. Uh, Anybody, it, can you please take off a shirt, anything? Press uh, that's steady what, there, pressure. There's clothing, the and everything, there's clothing and everything around. They're attempting to triage it right now. Okay. Like can you just listen to me for so. one second? Just, I yeah. need them to place firm, steady pressure on the wound. Do not yeah. lift it up to look. Just press Firmly. If it continues to bleed, you're not pressing hard enough, okay? All right. Tell them those instructions for me. Okay. So they're applying pressure. The victim, how old are they, male or female? It's a male, uh, approximately 50 years old, wearing a green shirt. Uh, his leg is Where is bleeding he bleeding from? His leg, his right lower leg just below the knee, it looks like the amount of blood that's coming out that they hit a main artery. Okay. We need to get EMS here as quickly as possible. They are coming, lights and sirens, sir. I need them to press firm, steady they are, they are. They are doing that, and they've, they've tied a band around his his leg. Let me get a belt. Yo, guys, see if you can tie more pressure with a belt. Okay, I know that you're worried about him. They're taking care of him. The other victim, are the, where are they stabbed at? It's just the one victim that was stabbed twice. Okay. It's like he's he stabbed in the ribs and the leg. Okay. It's just, I need it's them just, to press firm, steady pressure on both wounds for me, okay? Y'all hear that? Firm, steady pressure on both. Don't lift off. Don't, don't look. Just firm, steady. He's bleeding real okay. bad. Okay. I know, sir. I need to make sure he continues to breathe for us. If he stops breathing yes. at any time, I need you to tell me so I can tell you how to do CPR, okay? Yes, ma'am. I'm certified in CPR. He's fine right now. He's just in a, in a tremendous amount of pain. Keep his head elevated a little bit and just help him to breathe. I want you to just kind of teach him how to breathe. Take a deep breath in slowly, out slowly. In slowly, out slowly, okay? Breathe real close. In. Real deep in through the mouth, steady, constant, out through the mouth. Tell the people that are applying the pressure to his wounds, if it's bleeding through those shirts, get a different shirt and add it on top of that one. Do not lift it up whatsoever, okay? Will do. I need to push on top of this one. And if yeah. you can, pull it into your chest to, to provide enough pressure. Do you understand? Is the bleeding slowing down at all? It does not appear to be, no ma'am. Okay. More pressure for me. It may hurt him, but he needs that blood inside of him more than him being in hurt, okay? You got it. Ma'am, he's starting to go into shock a little bit. Okay. Tell him to breathe for me. If he passes out, I need everybody to stay calm for me. I know it's stressful, but I need to know if he continues to breathe. And if not, I need to help you with CPR, okay? Really focus in on your breathing, okay? You don't want to go into shock, okay? Is he still awake? Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes. Okay. His leg is not slowing down at all. We got pressure on? We got pressure. We got is that an officer? Yes, ma'am. It's the police officer. Yes, ma'am. The officer is going to get the paramedics mm -hmm. to him, okay? Well, the difference between the good clip and the bad clip there is completely night and day, isn't it? The caller there feels like he's on the A game straight away. So address, description yes. of the incident. Yes. Car description, mm -hmm. amazing. And he's volunteering most of this information. Yeah. And then he even says where the offender was driving to. That is all in the first minute compared yeah. to the bad call. We pretty much only heard the address. The guy might have been male. It was yeah. possibly his wife that may have been shot. Just night and day, aren't they? Yeah, it really is. And with this call, all the descriptions that the guy gave, 
ended up helping to arrest the guy because the police were, you know, driving to the scene. And while they were there, dispatchers were relaying exactly what he was saying. Police saw him as he was leaving about a half mile up the road and ended up little, a small chase, but they ended up ramming his truck. He got out, started running away from the police with, with the huge knife that he still had that he used to stab the other person in his hand. And after ordering to the ground several times, he, he wouldn't and kept running away and police ended up shooting him. He's still alive, but the threat was stopped at that point. He was obviously a threat to others because he had just stabbed someone over an, an armed robbery. And that's one of the things I actually talked about in the episode. I actually did about this one is that a lot of people had this notion that if you're running away from police, they can't shoot you. That's not the case A case here that went to the Supreme court from here in Tennessee, Tennessee versus Garner. They actually have deemed using deadly force against a person that's running away. It's okay to do so if they are deemed to be a threat to the public or responders. And if he would have dropped the knife and just ran, they probably wouldn't have shot him. But at that point, there's no telling what he's going to do. Go ahead and take him out. Now, in this good call, there was a load of information that was given. Is there a certain order that is beneficial for the dispatcher to get other than the address first? Yes. The phone number is generally the number two, but it can move around. Everything's fluid with this. The address is the main thing. The phone number is secondary because if you get disconnected, you can call them back and you verify the correct number. But with the way that we have our call set up now, we've got caller ID and you know things like that. So it's not necessarily like the second most important with this, where the guy's just leaving. He's on the road at this point. Police are likely going to drive by him, get that information first, You know, do all that. And then as you heard in the end of the call, you know, he's helping render aid to the victim. So generally you want to do the victim first, but that's only if the scene is safe and suspect info has already been obtained because that guy could have, he could have walked out there to his truck in the parking lot and just sat there and waited for sure. a, a, an ambulance to pull up and start stabbing them too. So scene mm. safety for the responders is the first thing. And then trying to find the suspect and then, you know, rendering aid from there. Yeah. I mean, he gave all that information so the dispatcher knew that he was gone. He was off the site. And then it kind of unfolded that there was a stabbing victim as well. It must be music to a 911 dispatcher's ears when they hear the words, I'm CPR trained. How often does that happen? Very rarely. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, really. And it's not that difficult to do. In almost any city, I'd say here in Britain, anywhere like that, there's going to be an agency that'll give that training usually for free. And it's not that long of a training. It's pretty easy. We can relay that, that information over the phone to try to, you know, time the chest compressions if it comes down to it for something like that, that the CPR part wasn't necessary because the, the patient was still conscious, still breathing. But, you know, the other thing stopping the bleeding, that's the big thing. And it sounded like the leg injury probably hit an artery. It was bleeding really badly. And I did love that the dispatcher that said, you know, if you do it correctly, it's going to hurt the person more. It will. Think about it. If you have a stab wound, if someone is pushing on that stab wound, it's going to hurt even more. Yeah, but it's stopping the bleeding. And that's, you know, one of the first rules of bleeding is all bleeding always stops. It's going to stop one way or another. That's true and horrific at the same time. Yeah. And so when you are doing your 911 training, what level of medical training do you have to have to confidently guide people through these emergencies? We're considered, uh, you know, emergency medical dispatchers as well. So it's very basic stuff. It's helping someone if they have stopped breathing and some sort of cardiac arrest to give them CPR, you know, birthing babies, things like that. And, you know, a guy that used to work with me, he was actually a paramedic out on the field before he came to be a dispatcher. And he says the big difference between being out there and being a dispatcher is having the knowledge to do all this stuff while being blindfolded and your hands tied behind your back because you can't see what's going on and you can't actually physically touch people. So you have to tell someone else what to do and how to do it. That was one of the things that I took away from both of those clips. You know, calls were quite long and I'd imagine response time, it's always going to be a good sort of five, 10 minutes before your emergency services get there. But the thing that really struck me was who is in charge of that situation. It's not the 911 dispatcher. It's literally Joe Bloggs on the street that is in charge of how that goes. Yeah. And it's better to have one of those good callers on the line because so many times I'll be on the phone with someone and it's just absolute chaos. They're not giving good information. They don't want to talk to police. They just keep saying, just get them here. Just get them here. And they're not realizing just like this last call that they, the caller can actually help this suspect getting caught instead of just saying, 
get here while they're getting there, they could literally drive right past the suspect and not know who he is. And luckily yeah. on that call, that worked out. I mean, he did not miss a beat. Let's talk about the caller, in fact, that called in. Do you know anything about him? I feel like he must have had some kind of level of law enforcement or hostage negotiation background, something that was setting him up to be such a great caller. No, I actually don't know very much about him. I read a little bit saying that they, mm. I can't recall if it's in this is probably incorrect. Maybe the mayor was going to give him some sort of a nice citation or something like that. I'm hoping mm. that something like this though, has pushed people on to say, okay, we need some basic medical training to help. If something like this ever happened again, it's better to have and not need than need and not have. Absolutely. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. So what were your takeaways in terms of the positive things that happened on that call? Well, I mean, if that person that was there rendering medical aid, if they wouldn't have been there, you know, that person could have easily died from the stabbings, the suspect information, that person could still be out there on the run, maybe stabbing more people or robbing more people. There's a lot of things that could have happened if that caller wouldn't have been on that line. Tell me percentage wise, roughly, because obviously you won't have these stats in your brain, I'm sure, but seventy three. So you do. This is like Jeopardy, that great American game that I've never, ever watched. But how many of calls would fall into this category where it is articulate, insightful in the information that they give straight away and controlled versus chaos, screaming, no sense? Very, very, very few. Um, And to give you a little bit of uh, background in that, we do both non-emergency and emergency calls on two separate lines. On the 911 line, I would say that maybe 10% would actually qualify to be considered a real life threatening emergency. 40 to 50% of the calls we get there are people who have their phone in their pocket. We call them butt dials. But then you take those 10% of the, the people that are calling for a real emergency. Most of them are faced with something they've never dealt with before. So they are not calm. They're in a chaos situation themselves. It's kind of the fight or flight type thing. You don't know how you're going to react to it until it actually happens. You want someone who's calm on the other line, but um, yeah, very few people call in like that and give really good information on it. I mean, I think that's a good point that you raise. All of us are potential 911 callers at some point in our lives. What would you tell us, the listeners, to do before we pick up the phone? Like I said, the address is number one thing. If you don't know the address, find an employee or someone close by that does know the address or the street name. Two cross streets will work for us. So the address is number one. If it's a police-related call, suspect information. And when I say that a description, you want very basic stuff, but stuff that can lead the police to affect an arrest. You know, I'm looking at you right now. You would be considered female white wearing a green dress with uh, long, dark hair. And that's very basic. It would be 
easy to find someone like that in the crowd of people. Think about if you're that person, what color shirt were they wearing? What color pants were they wearing? Did they have a hat on? Did they have a weapon? If so, what kind of weapon? Which way did they run? Just very basic stuff like that that will help differentiate the suspect from anybody else on the street and vehicle description if they left that way too. I want to ask you, what is the hardest thing that you have personally experienced doing this crazy job that you do day in, day out? Just the, sometimes the busyness of it. It's not, you know, the 911 call end of it, that's secondary, the actual radio end of it. It's a lot different than the phones on the phone. You can tell someone, Oh, hang on just a second while I type this up. You can't do that on the radio. You've got anywhere from maybe five or 10 units on the radio. And then you've got the busier ones that have 80 or 90 and all of them are wanting something you're doing multiple things all the time. And that's just on a basic day. If you have a big, huge call, like an active shooter or something like that, it goes absolutely nuts. I wonder, have you got a moment that you're most proud of in the job, like a call that you can walk away from and go, wow, I did something quite amazing today at work. I'll say probably, but like I said, there are so many, I'll try to give you one because it's, I guess it's, I was employee of the month a few months ago for this. A woman calls in and she'd just been carjacked. She was sitting in an intersection and she had a Dodge Challenger and three guys walked up and pointed guns at her and told her to get out of the car, threw her down on the ground and they sped off in her car. So I was talking to her a few hours later, I get a call from a locksmith and he says, I've just been called for these guys and they want me to make a key for this car because they don't have the key for it. It's one of the keyless entry type things where, you know, you just have it in your pocket or whatever, and you just push a button and it starts. They want me to make a key for that. And when I'm there, I notice they've got a couple of guns in the back of the car and they give me a description of it. And I asked what they look like. It all matched up. So I was like, okay, that's the guys, that's the vehicle. And directly after that, the police kind of knew of these people a little bit, but they wanted to make sure they could get them all. So they ended up getting the SWAT team helicopter. They had probably 50 units out there to get these three guys where actually was closer to six guys that were all hanging around there. And they asked me to do the radio portion of it too. And once they gave the go ahead. They got in, you know, there was no violence or anything involved, but a couple of them did run. They got them. So they got them all into custody. And, you know, those are some potentially violent people that got pulled off the street that day. So that, that was kind of good, I guess. Just a little bit good, Brandon. Um, That is an amazing story. Both those calls came to you that day. Yeah. What's the chances of it coming to you? I mean, at that time, I think there was probably, I don't know, 12 or 15 people taking phone calls. And wow. um, so doors. it could have gone to anyone. I don't, I don't know if your local place w- would allow this, but some places they'll allow you to go in and sit with the dispatcher for a day and just go in. It, it won't hurt to ask. Just go in there and you sit, you put on a headset, you're just sitting back and you're right there where it's happening and everything. And if you did that, you would understand more of what I'm talking about. There is one other way other than me going into a dispatch center to get the experience. And that is to listen to Music City 911. Absolutely. Um, yeah, do that. I saw on social media the other day that it was number one in the charts. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's happening there? Because that's incredible. Yeah. I, for a couple of weeks, it was the number one trending government-related podcast in the world. I've fallen back to number five now, so I'm obviously disappointed. But that's one thing. <laughs> it's going along pretty well. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can find the show on any podcast platform. You can go to my website, musiccity911.com. Go through there. You can do pretty much everything. Listen to episodes. Subscribe. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out.
This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen, and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series. And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.